All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. And welcome back to the last part of this very exciting, I'm sitting on needles here, program we have with Mr. Hoagland himself. <laughs> now, <laughs> Al, that sounds very uncomfortable. I would move off those needles right away. Well, don't you know about acupuncture? Ask Robin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it worked on the, on the posterior. <laughs> it works everywhere, I've heard. <laughs> so how long after we do this do you post? This show is a priority because we started out with the Secret Space Program series mm-hmm. and we've had some big shots on already. But uh, and we have other series we're doing too. But this is the, I think half our listeners are mostly interested in these series. And I know many of them have been pining. Okay. And, and so many of them don't even know you, Richard, because you remember podcasters have a different segment than radio people. So I look forward to bringing you to the attention of some new viewers. Okay. Well, see, this whole thing about social media has evolved so rapidly in the last couple, three years. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, like I said, it's going to be the new order of the day. And uh, do you know Daniel List, dark journalist? No. No, he's another bout there. I talked with him in a recent, we had a program recently where we were very critical to the fake secret space program mm-hmm. thing. And we discussed you briefly. And I, if you have time for more podcasters, I recommend the dark journalists. Yeah, sure. Well, see, if it's not on the weekend, uh, you know, I'm, see, the weeks I'm trying to finish this darn book we're working on. Right. Which hasn't worked well because there's so much to do, even two days, if you want to get the right guests and you want to structure it so they relate and all this. It's, you know, it's it's not like radio used to be where you call somebody up and you just kind of chit-chat. It's true. It's changing on so many levels. Uh, good thing you mentioned in your book. Oh, it has so many gems. That's why it's been delayed, you know. Okay. By the way, in, in this weirdness of social media, this is a whole new territory, and it's uh, yeah, if, basically for me too. I mean, I've been on the web since the web started, officially, big, bigly, as our president would say, <laughs> uh, in 1996. Enterprise has been there since the beginning, yeah. But it's it's the whole fabric has kind of evolved, and the the, the downside for me is. You know, you got like on Facebook, what, three quarters of a billion or a billion and a half or how many? Yeah. How, how can anybody be a signal in the noise? Facebook is, is poor for advert. It's, it's a good place to go to, you know, to give people a place to go. But it's bad to advertise unless you pay. Hmm. But you're right. You're very right. Uh, even if you were riding the train from the beginning, it's uh, increasing exponentially, I guess you could say. Uh, new platforms every day, and uh, I mentioned briefly uh, that YouTube and Google are being taken down these days by a joint concerted effort oh. from the uh, globalist uh, multinational cartels, not just mainstream media, everything from Disney to banks. They're all joint forces, and they're trying to impose censorship and it's worked. They're now defunding independent media and they're trying to bury it. 
And the end game, and this is my hypothesis, but it's, I think it's very obvious. The end game is that lamestream old media is in panic because I think it was last year for the first time ever, the rate of uh, viewers, listeners has crossed. So that's mm. more people tuning in now to the new media than the old. And of course, there are see, I don't see, I don't, I don't understand why they're panicking because when you look at the web, every individual who has a show or a blog or a podcast, whatever, is a, is a broadcast empire unto themselves. That's why they're panicking. Whereas if they want monopoly, but hang on, hang on. If, if, if you're Fox or CBS or CNN or whatever, you aggregate, you know, a million people. Right. For one network was opposed to one podcast, which has what? A thousand? Yeah, right. Well, it's uh, like, why are they panicking? Because there's no way you can ever be a signal on the web. At least that's my analysis. You know, well, that's, that's not entirely right, but you're right that it's much more competition. It's much more free market, but I'll tell you why. It's an easy analogy to NOS, actually. If the mainstream media was in the business of pleasing people and getting news out. You're right. They would be stupid to do that. But just like NASA, that's not their real agenda. Or, or maybe it is for the low-level uh, worker, but you know CIA has influence in most of the mainstream uh, desks. And yeah, e even so, they're owned by the same multinational cartels. And so it's just about controlling the narrative. Uh, I mean, look at Donald Trump. He wouldn't be the president if it wasn't mm -hmm. for the new media. So that's a reason to panic, right? Yep. So, no, so what uh, the end game is that, and this is my hypothesis, is that they're thinking, okay, newspapers die, TV die, radio die. So let that be. And we'll come into this new media and we'll take it over. They're so stupid. What they've started to do now is that they started to try to monopolize uh, YouTube with the channels. Uh, and they can talk about, let's say, Syria without getting flagged or buried. Mm -hmm. But an independent broadcaster can't. But what happens is that people... Uh, they're not turning away from mainstream media because of the platform. They're turning away because <laughs> it's so pretentious and fake. And, and there's no investigative journalist anymore, as you know. So they come into the new media because, oh, people swear, people are honest, you know, things are just real, right? Mm. So that's the problem. So, so they can't compete, even if they have YouTube by the balls, excuse my French, then it doesn't help. It just doesn't help. So it's very interesting times we live in, Richard. Well, I'm trying to keep one foot in radio, which is mainstream, but it's, it's you know, you have a large megaphone. Yeah. If you have the, and, and we're, we're working on negotiating with, with a network, which is going to give us basically free reign to do whatever I do here ordinarily. Mm. And then we're also exploring the social media, the whole digital realm. But the whole digital thing is so it's like it's like trying to find a pin in a, in a haystack it's it's <laughs> it's like how does anybody aggregate an audience that can make any difference because everybody has their own opinion everybody yeah. has their own voice everybody has their own channel yeah and when everybody can talk, nobody can hear. It's a good point. But you will remember it's the beginning. Uh, I don't know how it was in the beginning of the radio days. Maybe it was always controlled. But it's a natural kind of organic thing happening here. So what you will see is that people will start cooperating. They will make their own, mm. not media houses, what you call it, networks, uh, corp partners. I'm already associated with uh, uh, Skeptico, one of the best science shows out there, uh, alternative science shows. 
and dog journalist. And so, so you will find eventually that there will be lesser segments people will join. Uh, some order will come out See, of it. I, but the, I, the, I, the let me just add this. The advantage you have when you go online is that in radio, you're dependent on how many people are tuning in right now. But you know, people are spoiled now. They don't want to... Mm. When I was young, we had to run in to watch a television program. They dictated my day, right? Now it's opposite. It's on demand. Yep. So when I have, like, say, uh, Joseph Farrell uh, on a popular topic... Within a year, we have a hundred thousand people tuning into it because people do it at their own time. But if this was just live at one point, if it was a big radio show, maybe I'd get a hundred thousand, but I would be dependent on it there and then. Mm. And it just increases and it increases and there's more and more links to it and more and more people and it spreads. So it spreads exponentially. It doesn't decline and die off. It just, it just spreads laying there online and spreads so that's the advantage despite the chaos okay well um that's a whole other show yeah (laughs) (laughs) but uh you were going to tell us something when we're uh, well i was going to talk about the m drive but you wanted to talk about the history of apollo and the two actually go together okay cool nasa is founded on the idea of rockets rockets go back at least in our modern history to the chinese you know wang hu and all those guys And basically in a rocket, you've got a sealed tube and you have one end open. The rest of the sides are closed. You light up something that burns at high speed inside the tube. The gases expand. They go out the missing fourth wall. Action and reaction. The rocket casing goes in one direction. The gases go in the other. And that's a rocket. Boom. Every rocket you see, every space launch you see on television, whether it's Chinese or Russian or North Korean testing missiles, or or the Soviet Union, or the modern Russians, or the European Space Agency, or NASA, they're using publicly the same reaction-reaction closed-tube rocket technology that was invented five, 4,000 years ago, according to our current history. Mm-hmm. No new developments. Now, why are rockets good and why are they bad? Well, one is, if you build them big enough, as we've now done, you can do all kinds of amazing things. You can send human beings to the moon. You can send robotic spacecraft to the planets. You can fly by the most distant planet, underscore planet, Pluto. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Pluto in my book is still a a planet, not not anything else. That was a political sidestep that somebody tried to do for weird reasons. I mean, why, why dethrone Pluto as a planet? That there's a story there, but we don't have time right no, now. We don't. Anyway, all of the ways that human beings now are currently using to send vehicles anywhere in the solar system is by means of rockets, action and reaction. Apollo was a super rocket built by von Braun, who was part of the Nazi paperclip group of NASA engineers, Nazi engineers imported to NASA back 15, in 15,000 people I've heard, all in all, yeah, with families yeah. and all. That's amazing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, wh- why? I mean, talent migrates where talent will be rewarded, and they were the guys on the planet that knew how to make things that nobody else could make. So mm. in the Cold War, we got some, the Russians got some, and whatever. And, of course, the Cold War was all a kind of a canard in my book to create the technology to match what the guys out there have. So what's the quickest way to get technological advance? You have a war. Mm. 
problem is in a war you have destruction. Well, how can you have development and creation in the midst of destruction? Answer, you have a cold war where everybody feels they're on a war footing, but nothing except a few little things here and there at the edges is destroyed. But the culture is focused on objectives, on deadlines, on progress, on technological development. How many incredible technology technologies came out of the Cold War race between us and the old Soviet Union? Yeah, good point. And I think it was all fostered to get us ready to meet who's really out there because there probably aren't some nice people out there, you know, and they may or may not be cousins, but that's another show in another day. The point is that with Apollo, NASA built on the technology developed in Germany uh, before World War II, Werner von Braun and his colleagues, and they brought it to this country in paperclip. They sent them out here to New Mexico to White Sands Proving Ground south of me here in the land of enchantment. They kept them there on the reservation for like five years or something. They then brought them to Huntsville, Alabama. They created a whole space center devoted to Von Braun and his colleagues to develop really, really, really big rockets. And so when Kennedy was given the option of going to the moon, lo and behold, the Nazis already had created the technology so he could do it. Mm. And that's not really known that all of that technology that took us to the moon Most of the hard part had already been envisioned and was actually in metal and being tested before Kennedy made the announcement. Mm. I was stunned when I found this out because I thought, you know, president makes announcement, then engineers follow, right? Mm. No, the technology to go to the moon was there before Kennedy aimed us in that direction, which tells me the Nazis knew about structures on the moon and they wanted them for themselves when they came over and took over NASA They basically killed Kennedy. They replaced his hand-picked head of NASA, who was James, um, um, what's his name? Um, ah, I'm having a a mental. Webb? Webb, James Webb. Yeah, of course. Webb Telescope is named after him. Mm. James Webb was a 33rd degree Mason. Mm. And he and Kennedy crafted something called Space Age America. Kennedy envisioned as part of his new frontier that NASA would be at the at the leading edge of the spear to basically bootstrap, to lift without a war all the key technologies that would make life on Earth human. Mm. He created, you know, the Peace Corps to basically seed advanced technologies and democratic ideas into all kinds of other countries at the grassroots, helping people live better, cleaning their water, keeping them from dying of disease, giving them ways of, of building you know, with different materials than, you know, straw and mud and stuff like that. Anyway, they got rid of Kennedy. Ultimately, uh, Webb resigned in a very bizarre do-si-do back just before Apollo 8 in 1968. Still not explained why he suddenly quit. And then NASA afterwards was occupied, I believe, by a Nazi tier of managers, people who knew what they were doing, and they were the ones instituted the secrecy but, but, but LBJ wasn't even watching, Joseph told me, the landing, even though he had been such a proponent for it. So what did he know? Well, yes, because he knew it was a fake. You're right. Now, speaking of fakes, let's talk about Apollo 11. Mm. Was Apollo 11 real or was it a fake mission? Uh, I am of two minds on this. I can provide data that says Apollo was real. 
I can also provide data that said that Apollo was done on a studio because they weren't ready yet to go to the moon with Apollo. Eventually, we did and get... And they needed a showcase for the Soviets, right? And they needed... They needed well, they needed a showcase for everybody, mm. not just the Soviets. I mean, you don't think the Soviet spies knew if we did or did not go. Ah, right, right. But right, they're right. in on it. Mm-hmm. Remember, the, the world is ruled by an inner, inner class, and the rulers we see are simply puppet masters doing the bidding of the hidden secret class. Yep. And it transcends nation states. It transcends history. It transcends race. It's basically a secret world government, which is why it'd be nice to have a kind of a public world government so there'd be some accountability. Mm. At least there'd be the, the pretense of accountability. You'd have someone to go to and... Com- no, no, not even they are accountable anymore. So <laughs> but that's another story. That's another program, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, so Von Braun built the NASA program on his V-2 rocket technology. Because the Saturn V is basically just a big, 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 big V-2, right? Yeah, yeah. So there has been no real progress in space travel for 5,000 years, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Except... Enter the M drive. Ah. NASA, in the last year, has published a a peer-reviewed paper, which is the gold standard of real science in our cultures. If it's peer-reviewed and published under appropriate academic credentials, you're supposed to believe it. Yep. NASA published a sanctioned peer-reviewed paper demonstrating this so-called M drive which is totally, totally, radically different than rockets. Oh, I've heard about it, after all, yes. First chance in 5,000 years, yep. the M-drive is real. Mm. Now, why is this important? Because an M-drive can be built by any Holly, Hollywood, any hobbyist in his garage or basement. And one of them I know, because we funded him through our show, The Other Side of Midnight, I raised several thousand dollars to fund um, a guy to basically build his M drive in his garage. Wow. And it worked. So if, let me explain a bit how it works. With a, with a rocket, you've got to have an open end. You burn gases inside the, the container, and the, the open end allows the gases to escape. Action, reaction. The vehicle goes one way, the gases go the other. That's a rocket. Mm. In an M drive, you have a cone-shaped microwave uh, antenna, totally sealed, usually made of copper. You pump microwaves into it, and the M drive, like a homesick homing pigeon, wants to move toward the short end of the cone. Hmm. Now, how do you get action and reaction out of a sealed system, a closed system? The answer is in current physics, you can't. What the M drive is doing is through the microwaves, it's tapping into the underlying torsion field so you're basically using pulling yourselves up by your own bootstraps (laughs) you're basically climbing on the ether because the ether is this river of flowing material that the microwaves and the m drive are interacting with and there's a differential between the front end and the back end and the ether actually is being pulled through the drive and accelerated through the walls because it doesn't understand about matter. It, it's it's transparent to matter. Okay, so it works, and it works going anywhere. Yeah, but you could then argue that it's the same principle. Only you're 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 taking it from another dimension in a way. Sure, it's like an interdimensional yes, yes. same principle as regularly. Only okay, add a dimension. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll buy that. The point okay. is, in three dimensions, 
it looks like you're getting something for nothing. Yeah, exactly. Because if you if you put two M drives on a on a on a on a pole, on a vertical rod, and you have one aimed one way and the other on the other side aimed in the opposite direction, mm-hmm. 180 degrees apart, it will cause the rod to spin to rotate like uh, like an anemometer. You know, like those little things of wind cups that they put out to measure wind speed. Mm. Except to think of them as not wind cups, but as M drives, you know, two of them, four of them, six of them, however. You spin that rod, at the base of the rod, you put a generator. You basically can bring in more energy from higher dimensions to run the M drives than you're using to run the M drives. Mm. So you have what's called perpetual motion, which means you have infinite electricity out of the ether, which means you can do away with every coal-fired, nuclear-fired, oil-fired power plant in the world Build something the size of a bread box in your basement and every single house now being threatened with a power outage because Hurricane Irma is bearing down on Florida. If they all had their basement M-drive power units, each house would be independently powered, though not outside wires, and they would survive. If the structure survived the hurricane, their power would never go out. That's the revolution that we have. Now, here's the real revolution. You take an M-drive, you put it in a privately owned spacecraft, either developed by musk or bezos or me i've actually been approached by a private satellite group that want to get together with my m drive guy and they have got they've raised the money to put a private spacecraft in earth orbit next year to hunt for ufos it's called a cubesat and it's supposed to be launched on a conventional rocket kind of dumped out as part of this this air force nasa cooperation and then the private satellite does whatever it wants to do until it re-enters and burns up in a couple, three months. Yeah. They want to put a privately developed M drive in this private satellite. And I'm bringing the two groups together. I don't think it's going to happen next year. I think it's going to happen maybe the year after. But if that happens in the next couple of years, you then put that thing in Earth orbit. You turn it on. And like a homesick homing pigeon, it will go wherever you point it. And it will go and it will go, and it will go, because there's no fuel. All it needs is electricity. You put a couple of solar panels on it, you've got an empty electricity from the sun, which means you could send your little M-drive spacecraft to the moon. Hmm. You could send it to Mars. You could send it to Pluto. And because you're accelerating at a constant G, it wouldn't take you 10 years to reach Pluto. It might take you a year. So basically, we're talking your own little space drone here. Yes. And the key part is anybody who can afford a a Porsche or a Mercedes or a Maserati can have their own space program because that's how much this is going to cost. Amazing. Tens of thousands of dollars. And that means you can send automatic drone cameras on M-Drive rocket, not rockets, but but systems anywhere in the solar system to get close-ups of the alien ruins and structures all over the solar system, totally uncensorable by NASA, by the NSA, by the DOD, by the Chinese, by the Russians, because they get dumped on the Internet. Would this be what Werner von Braun and company had back in the Apollo missions? Would this be the real technology behind the actual moon landing? Well, I don't know. I am still on the fence whether there was secret anti-gravity technology incorporated in the lunar module. I have some evidence that says yes. I have some evidence that says no. Um, so I'm, I'm, I remember I'm an evidence kind of guy. I'm looking at the evidence. Sure. 
Um, I know we could have done it with rockets. I know we could have done it as advertised. It was very dangerous. It was very dicey. And they stopped doing it because they didn't want to kill people. Mm. Plus, they also brought home to Earth something that I think they really, really wanted, which is when they landed Apollo 17 uh, at the Apollo 17 landing site, which, by the way, is a whisker away from 19.5 degrees north on the moon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you know that? (laughs) I think they brought back a robotic head of an ancient robot. Dota. Yes, CP3PO or whatever, yeah. That was flying that crater, Shorty Crater. I think they retrieved it and brought it home. Now, if in any good robotic model, Asimov et al., this robot was able to store the record of its entire civilization's history in memory. Mm. It means if you could somehow figure out how to talk to it, reactivate it, you would have access to a galactic archive, a library of stunning information, cultural, artistic, technological, scientific, any culture that had that under their purview, under, under wraps, under their exclusive control, would own not just the Earth, they'd own the damn solar system or this part of the galaxy. That's what Kennedy was willing to give to the Soviets, and that's why I think the Nazis killed him. Right. Uh, hey, quick interjection. I've shown that picture that you have in your book, Dark Mission. I've shown it to people who have no idea what it's about. They haven't even heard about you. I've said, what is this? Oh, it's it's obviously a head. It seems like uh, an artificial head. That's what people are saying. That's a, that's called a blind test. Yes. And do they notice the iris eyes? That I don't think. The uh, go and look at that picture again because yep. the eyes of this of this head on the moon, lying next to you know other artifacts. Yes. They have camera-like iris lenses. Oh, okay. They're not human. Okay. They're 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 they basically look like an eye within an eye, which is a camera iris. And it would be a mechanical thing, and it would be activated by light so that your robot would not be blinded, etc., looking at bright lights or looking in dim shadows and all that. And he also had a red stripe yeah. under his chin. That's weird. Which, to me, if you have a bunch of robots doing all your manual labor, you would basically code them. The red stripes would be, let's say, the, the farmers, and the blue stripes might be oh, kind of like the red shirts and the blue shirts on the Enterprise. Yeah. Each division, each function has a color. Mm. This head has a red stripe, which, of course, rocks on the moon do not come with red stripes under their chins. So to (laughs) me, they were color-coded robots for their service functions as part of the society which created them. And that leads us to Battlestar Galactica, doesn't it? Mm. That's interesting, yes. Think about the theme behind Battlestar Galactica. Humans create a bunch of robots. The robots revolt. Yep. They throw over humans. They attack them. They almost decimate them because they don't want to be chattel and owned anymore. Going back to Isaac Asimov and when does a robot become a self-sentient aware being? And if you create them in a certain form, do other entities, other consciousness from other dimensions, do they come and inhabit the robot so it's really sentience? It's not artificial. It's basically you've created a home for this consciousness to move into. A new vehicle for the soul. Possibly. Yes. Possibly. But Clark Clark McClellan, I'm sure you know about him. I think he claimed that they had two space programs. Yep. I'm not sure. Unfortunately. What's your opinion about Clark McClellan? 
he is very he's a very fragile reed to rest this on because his personal life is a disaster and it may be by design because he's been so attacked oh, so yeah, oh, they they crushed him no doubt yeah and, and and you know you have to look at the credibility of someone like that and and ask questions but if he was the only source i would say well okay but he's not the only source and, and again the whole NASA program, going back to Kennedy, looking at those Project Corona super-secret satellite images taken not of the Soviet Union, but of the moon, that tells you where Kennedy was focused and why he was focused and why he, he insisted up to his dying day that, that going to the moon had the highest priority because he knew what it would do to our civilization and the bread box it would blast us out of and they killed him before he could begin to democratize it the way he envisioned. Mm -hmm. And that, by the way, gets us back to Donald Trump. Because I think if these files on the Kennedy assassination are released per the legal schedule set in motion by the House Committee on Assassinations back in the 70s, the 50-year end date ends on October 26th of this year, 2017, if Donald Trump does not stand in the door and allows all this to come out, I think we're going to find the real reason that Kennedy was killed had to do with his mission to the moon and nothing to do with the Cuban thing or the CIA thing or the Russian thing or the mob thing. Well, I don't think those things helped, but uh, of course, this would be the biggest concern. Did you ever see a stunning movie called Murder on the Orient Express? Oh, yeah, of course. All versions. Okay. Remember the final outcome? Yeah, good point. Yeah, that's kind of Joseph's take, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I think. They all had reason to kill him. Yeah. But the real reason under which, again, it's like the masquerade. It's like the diversion. The trigger point. You know, mm. you want to keep the diversion, the real reason, secret. So you put out all these other reasons yeah. that are also equally real. But they're not the ultimate reason, which was Kennedy was going to suddenly democratize the human spirit in ways that would be game changing yeah. and still will be if we can follow the mantra and make everything out there not secret, but public. But do we have many uh, NASA whistleblowers? I know you've cooperated with a certain Ken Johnston. Right. Well, see, I'm not so much into the whistleblowers because each individual can be blown away. Yep, that's true. I'm into the actual the actual cadre of NASA engineers. But but Ken has delivered, hasn't he? Because what many people oh, yeah. what many people don't know is that not only is there a suspicion about the Apollo missions footage, but they even destroyed it. Well, they did more than that because he has a story where he talks about, um, you know, when Apollo 14 came back. Yeah. <clears throat> they were taking what's called DAC camera footage, which was a uh, uh, basically a gun camera, you know, military Air Force gun camera modified to take footage out the lunar module window or the command module window during the Apollo missions. They brought this footage back. It had to be developed in a lab, of course, in Houston by a guy named Dick Underwood. He was the head of the photographic lab. And he gives Ken, uh, who was, by the way, part of the Lunar Receiving Laboratory um, uh, sample uh, request stream to the individual investigators, the scientists who had participated in Apollo. Ken dealt with those, and he gave them film, and he gave them samples of their their rocks, photograph, close-up, and all that. That was his curatorial duties as a contractor through, I think, Brown and Root to the Lunar Receiving Laboratory there in Houston during Apollo. And one day he was given an order to destroy 
all copies, extraneous copies of the film under his oh, purview, insane. except for one that NASA would keep in the, in, in the archive. Insane. And something about this young guy, he was my age. You know, he was in the middle of the most extraordinary adventure of his life, right? Mm. Marine, Marine pilot. Something told him this was not right. Mm. So he put a whole bunch of the film in a gunny sack and he sent it to his university. And then he proceeded to destroy the rest. Well, years later, we tried to find that film and the film had neatly disappeared from the university. So obviously people, agents were following what he was doing. But he did keep some film to himself in his personal archive, and he carried it with him through move after move after move. Now, you know, Al, I don't know how many times you've moved in your life, but every time you move, you lose stuff. Yeah. Somehow Ken kept the Apollo footage. So when we met back in the 90s, he was able to give me a pristine 30-year-old unsanitized version of an Apollo 14 image taken by Alan Shepard of Ed Mitchell on the moon. And it was on that unsanitized original copy of the NASA film shot on the moon that I found the first corroboration in the Apollo program of the ancient glass structures on the moon arching over Mitchell putting up the TV camera on Alan Shepard's photograph. Yeah, because what many people don't know is that when they sent the pictures from the moon, it wasn't a original footage it was uh, what you call a projection could you briefly explain that well we're mixing our our photographic streams remember there okay. were several sets of imagery coming from the moon yeah there was initially the handheld cameras by the astronauts on the surface mm. taking stills hasselblatt 70 millimeter stills black and white in color mm. there were also these dac cameras that had 16 millimeter film black and white in color mounted and on various parts of the spacecraft, including on the rovers, to document some of the rover activities. That was all film, brought back, developed, and then made public. There was also the DAC cameras, the, the film cameras, the 16-millimeter uh, military aircraft gun cameras modified uh, that were shooting through the windows of various parts of the rendezvous and docking and releasing the limb and all that. Those are public domain. Mm -hmm. Then, during the actual lunar walks, starting with Apollo 11, there was a TV signal sent live from the moon, an electronic signal with a television camera connected to a transmitter in the lunar module sent through radio waves back to Earth, picked up by big ground stations on the Earth, sent to Houston, converted there because it was the wrong format. It had to be converted mm -hmm. from one scanning system to the NTSC, the FCC-mandated 525 line scanning system for American television or your CCAM system there in Europe. And it was that conversion that was a real problem because NASA originally never imagined they would actually take a TV camera to the moon. Don't you find that bizarre? That's insane. You do make a point of it in the postscript of the book too. Yes, it's totally insane. And, and it was a guy named Stan Labar, I think, at Westinghouse who bludgeoned and beat until his hands were bloody NASA officials to finally include a black and white camera on the moon mission, the first moon mission. Even though they did have color. Oh, yeah, they had, they had stunning color. They could have had color. The reason was, of course, they dared not let people see in any high definition mm. what was on the moon live on television because they could have been photographing all those ancient glass structures they didn't want people to see. Mm. Okay? So they put us through this convoluted Rube Goldberg process of 
physically mounting the camera, looking at a TV set, which was converting from scan television to NTSC television and all that arcane stuff. They did it to basically keep secret live what was really there. So what you had that night, which Robert Heinlein and watched in that studio, that hangar in Downey, California, live while we're looking at the moon falling into the Pacific Ocean through the open hangar doors, were these ghostly images, the poorest quality television you can imagine mm. in the 20th century. Anticlimax. On a nation raised by television of the two guys cavorting around on the moon, deliberately made bad, 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 so that people couldn't pick up if the camera detected the glass structures, which would have been in the background. Mm. Now we fast forward the videotape to 19, I forget what anniversary, but NASA wants to do this big deal anniversary, right? Mm. So they, they go and try to find the original videotape they've recorded. So using modern computer technology, they can basically change those ghostly figures with computer enhancement. They could have been as crisp and clear as almost now television. Mm. And they can't find the videotape. And they can't find it. And they look high and low. And they look in archives all over the world. And finally, they come out with the story. Oh, well, we were so desperate for money a few years ago. We mistakenly reused the tape. We taped over it because we couldn't have money for videotape. <laughs> right. Which, of course, is nuts. Yeah. That tape exists in some secret archive, and they dare not let us see it. And they dare not let ordinary Americans with laptops and, you know, Stephen Job Mac technology get their hands on it because they will bring out, they will enhance the yep. background glass structures if it's ever allowed to see the light of day. So like we've done already with the crumbles they have released. Yes, exactly. But then, then stuff pops up in, in dumpsters and, and all sorts of <laughs> insane... Uh, what's that about? Well, remember, no system is foolproof. Even if the order goes out, there'll be people like Ken Johnston who when they get the order, they'll say, wait a minute. This bothers me. This is not moral. This is not what I signed up. This is not part of my NASA charter, which was to freely make available. I mean, they could have given that excess film if it was excess. Can you imagine having copies of lunar photographs no. that are defined as excess? Yeah. They could have given it to kindergartens, to grade schools, to libraries. Media, museums, you name it. Yeah. Yeah. They could have disseminated far and wide, not ordered him to it, but they want it destroyed so no one would ever see it because that was when the cover-up was in full bloom. Now with the internet, with social media, with more people listening to radio on the internet like this show than are listening to radio on radio, mm. these log jams, these filters, these blocks, these dams are breaking down one by one by one. And ultimately, somewhere, somehow, we're going to get to see the original Apollo 11 videotape footage of the first lunar landing, I swear it dollars to Navy beans, that footage was not destroyed. It exists somewhere, and it's only a matter of time until it comes out. From your mouth to the heirs of the gods. <laughs> I know you're pressed for time, Richard. Yeah, I just want to point everybody again. Well, it all depends what Donald Trump does this coming October, if he's still president. Yeah, that's another question. What he does in October, whether he re releases all of the files around the Kennedy assassination, which... You would, know, that will be the mother of all October surprises. Yeah, it will be. So that's the one to stay tuned for and to watch, because that will tell us whether his entire administration is built on lies or on incredible 4D deception, so that he's sidetracking everybody from knowing what he's ultimately going to do, 
before he does it. We all hope you're right, but but I must admit uh, I'm extremely sceptical to all sorts of disclosure because I've never seen examples of any disclosure. If anything has been disclosed, it's been grudgingly, it's been dragging the feet, it's been the foster, uh, basically foster. Yes. Are you aware of Richard Dolan's scenario for disclosure, the AD book? Not really. I've been trying to get uh, Dolan on my show. If you have any good words, put it in. Because I want him to come on and talk about He's the break. He's very hard to get on. I mean, to get hold of, I mean. Yeah. That's the problem. But No, I know that they... We have had him on, uh, but he... Yeah, sorry, go on. I know he's written a book about post-disclosure. Yeah. But I don't really remember how he arrives at when it's going to happen. Because to me, in the ritual model, it has to happen this year. Between now and the end of this year, 20... 17, by the way, is not 2017. It's really 2012. Oh, That's a whole other discussion about calendars and yeah. lions and synchronizing calendars. This is 2012. Okay. How do I know this? Because the physics we've been measuring with the Akatron says this is 2012. So in the, And you can only surf when surf's up, right? If you're a guy surfing, although there's not much surfing in Norway, I guess. No. But you can only surf when surf is up. The, the the energetic background physics is the highest. Yeah, the open window, basically. That's the principle. Yes, yes. yes. And that's what it has to happen. And both sides, if you can think of good guys and bad guys, yeah. both sides are vying for control of human consciousness in this time window. And that could be one of the major wild cards that could tip the balance in favor of an open as opposed to a closed system. Then they need to control the narrative. Yes, exactly. So 2017 is the year to look for for disclosure. If it's ever going to happen, it has to be sometime between now and the end of the year. And luckily, imagine the whole Kennedy thing was planned 50 years ago to occur in 2017 Hmm. in October. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. I'm in New York in October. Yeah. I hope hope it will go down (laughs) well. (laughs) So I get home. We will see. Hey, before we uh, part here, you do have friends in NASA. That's obvious. Yes. I mean, I'm not just talking about that you've been invited there and that you know it, but aren't people seeding stuff to you? Yes. And there were some people a few years ago who seeded me some remarkable 19.5 stuff that went over the heads of all the mainstream press. It always published mainstream, but I was the only one that got the heads up. And of course, I know what it means. It's more code. By the way, watch very carefully this whole tabby star phenomenon. You know about tabby star? No, tell us. Oh, my God. This is this star that was developed. Uh, It was in 2009, NASA launched a mission called the Kepler Space Telescope. Yes. Right? It was designed to use a CCD camera. Remember, these incredible linear cameras that can see very faint things and very bright things on the same uh, plate, on the same electronic uh, recorder. Mm-hmm. It was focused at one direction in the Milky Way called the Cygnus uh, Lyra system. Right. And it, it lasted about four years before the reaction wheels stuck and they had to change the mission. And now it's been changed in terms of its focus and where it's pointing and all that. But in those four years, it recorded one star out of about 200,000 in the direction of Cygnus that has the most baffling, bizarre, amazing, far out unbelievable light curve you can imagine Mm. the star is a main sequence star a bit heavier and more massive than the sun and it's normally normal it just you know shines like a bright f type star will shine except suddenly it will undergo incredible eclipses 
by as much as 20% for like months at a time. Hmm. And then it will suddenly regain its brightness. And then it will go through lesser eclipses. Well, in the mainstream media, triggered by a paper that was published uh, publicly in 2015, years after the mission ended, when they got citizen scientists involved in going through all the archive Kepler data, yeah. they published a paper showing this bizarre, remarkable star called by some the most mysterious star in the universe. And one hmm. of the models that was floated again and again in the mainstream, from Space.com to The Atlantic to NBC, mm -hmm. was there was an alien megastructure built around Oh, yeah, I remember. Yes, yes, there was a lot of hype there. Yes, but, keep on. But it, but think of it as hype in the mainstream. The mainstream didn't giggle. They didn't laugh. Nope. They published a serious, sober analysis that, in fact, Tabby Star could be our first discovered super advanced Type 2 ET civilization. Of course, because if it's far away enough, then they can, you know, then it's okay. <laughs> Only 1,500 light years away, right? Well, to us, that's uh, so-called unreachable. So, you know, yeah. then it's okay. Yeah. But what we have discovered, and is going to be part of this video and part of the book, uh -huh. is the tap star is exquisitely, intricately, and redundantly mathematically connected to this solar system and specifically to Mars. Okay, you mean our solar system. It's part of our solar system. It's yes. part of our hidden history. Mm. It's part of the Martian experience. It's part of how we came to be human beings on planet Earth. And isn't it oddly interesting that in 2017, the world has gone nuts over a potential alien civilization living around Tabby's star. We are being prepared. Wow. Could that be the counter sun that uh, the ancients speak of? No, 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 no. This is, this, I think, in our model, this is the place where the guys who came here and created what we see around us, including us, mm -hmm. that's where they came from. All right. And they left us clues so we can know where daddy and mommy ultimately live. Right, right. As we see in the Masonic lore and, and yeah. Exactly. Mm. So you're going to see an awful lot more, particularly if the big revelation on Tabby Star comes this year in 2017, which it could well be. In other words, all of the mainstream hype, all the mainstream press sensitizing, as my intel agents call it. They say you have to have what's called a, uh, a certain soak time so mm. people get inured with the idea. And then, and then you blast them with new news. The new news is going to be Tabby Star, in fact, is artificial. Wow. That's one to watch them. <laughs> but when you say, you know, we talk about NASA, isn't there really two layers in NASA? Because most people would say, hey, how can all these people be in on it? Obviously, they are not all in on it. So how many, is it a question of a segment in NASA knowing or is it external people who just controls NASA? No, I, I think it's three layers. I think there's the external modulation. In other words, NASA gets its orders. The top brass get their orders. Yeah. All right. And, it, and it's not just the White House. All right. No, of course. CIA probably. And there, there then is a layer that knows they're getting orders. Right. And, and they're willingly going along with it. They're part of the cover-up. They're, right. they're designing. Then you have the vast majority of engineers and scientists and people that work for NASA. Most of them, 99% of them are completely oblivious. Yeah. They're like I was back when I worked for Cronkite. I couldn't imagine there'd been a hidden agenda for NASA then. If you told me I would say, oh, come on, you're nuts. Yeah. 
But some of those people, a percentage, they have figured it out. Yep. And, and they are reading your books. And well, maybe they are. Maybe, maybe they've just figured it out on, on their own. But what they've done that we have found is they have left clues going back to the Apollo era in the Apollo data, like in the film. Remember I talked about the DAC camera films? Yeah. They hid messages for us in the splicings between the films. Hmm. coded messages left by NASA people in 1969, 1970, 71, 72 in the films for those who would come after like me and others that would be able to look at it and say, oh, that's what they meant. Hmm. So there was this revolutionary group in NASA resisting the Nazis. Already back then. Already the resistance inside the agency, yeah. desperately unhappy. They'd been taken over by the Nazi crowd, but following their Masonic Shemsu Hor tradition right. to make this public. And they're still there and they're still doing it. And I have a feeling they have some big surprises in this year, 2017, still to unveil. Do you think Buzz Aldrin is, is part of that crowd? What did Aldrin do when he came back from the moon? Well, he 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 was sour. He's been cranky ever since. Oh, very, very, very. But what did he do professionally? He wrote a book. Oh, okay. He wrote a novel about an alien civilization really? discovered on the moon. No. Yes. Buzz Aldrin? Wow. Yes, he's called Encounter at Tiber. I didn't know this. My bad. Google. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe you. Google is your friend. <laughs> yeah. Aldrin either suspected through his mind conditioning, his mind control. I go into a dark mission. I go into how all the astronauts had their minds kind of messed with. Manipulated, yeah. Manipulated, yeah. Or between those segments when it wears off and you ha they have to maybe have booster shots because there's evidence that this doesn't take forever that you can't maintain the, the, the block that they actually begins to come through. Like Charlie Duke. Charlie Duke, who was the um, astronaut with John Young, who jaunted around on the lunar surface in Apollo 16 in the rover. Mm. Remember what Charlie Duke said about the dreams he had on the moon? How he was dreaming. He was yeah. lying there in the lunar module over that first night before they went out on their second EVA. And he has this dream that they're riding in the rover and they come across tracks. And he follow, they follow in his dream the tracks, and they find another rover with two astronauts, obviously long dead, sitting there in their spacesuits with their helmets, their gold helmets down so they can't see the features. Mm -hmm. And in his dream, they get off, he gets off his rover, and he walks over across the moon dust a few feet to the other rover, and he lifts up the outer gold covering, mm -hmm. and he's looking at himself. Wow. And that's in print. Now, was that a fake story? So he gets the word out. Remember, Elmin Dickinson, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Yeah, and we have also, you've elaborated so many times in different shows about Armstrong trying to send out messages. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Up to but if anyone, if anyone find the preposterous that they've been, uh, you know, suggested, not just pressured, but actually manipulated, hypnotized, let me remind you of the debunker Darren Brown. He set out to debunk that hypnosis could attain stuff like this. He was studying Sirhan Sirhan, who claims that he was not just hypnotized to forget, but to actually murder a president. Yes. And you know what Darren Brown found? No. That it was possible. Mm. The debunker 
he was going to debunk it, but he's sincere, right? Yeah. So he ended up with the opposite evidence. And it's a popular show out there. Everyone can see it. So he has proven that you can get people to kill, not, not just, you know, dubious people, but normal, kind people to assassinate someone, a famous person, and then forget all about it. Interesting. It's proven. It's not even up for discussion. So when you suggest that this could have happened to the astronauts, something similar... It's in. It goes right along with what we know for a fact is possible. Well, again, that, well, I have I have data, I have evidence, and I lay it out in Dark Mission. For instance, um, yep. one of my colleagues in the space covering business, he worked for NBC. I worked obviously for Cronkite and CBS. Was uh, Jay Barbary. You have seen Jay Barbary covering every space launch for the last forty years. Jay Barbary now looks like he might last another forty years, but he's getting up there, you know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Jay Barbary, a year or two after the Apollo 11 mission, out at um, Edwards Air Force Base, and I believe a Kiwanis Club, you know, which had a hall, he held a little party for Aldrin, and he was doing for NBC a kind of a documentary about Apollo and two years now and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So he has Apollo, he has Apollo astronaut uh, Buzz Aldrin on stage. They're sitting in two very easy chairs, big armchairs. They've got a whole bunch of audience out in front of them, Kiwanis Club members, members of the public, whatever. And they're on an Air Force base, Edwards Air Force Base, which is a supreme NASA test facility, used to be Air Force and went to NASA. So they're just having a kind of two buds talking about the space program, right? Mm-hmm. So all, uh, Barbary asked him, well, Buzz, you know, what did it feel like to land for the first time on the moon? Yeah. And Aldrin sits there. Suddenly he jumps up, runs off the stage, runs out a side door into an alley next to the Kiwanis Hall and throws up his lunch all over the, the alley. Huh. Protection uh, program kicks in. Now, if that is aversion therapy. Yes, exactly. So he could not even go close to what it felt because it was Ed Mitchell who told me and told many other people and actually wrote it in his uh, book, The Way of the Explorer. Mm-hmm. He said what bothered him for years was he could not, he could remember all the mission details, what they did here, what they did there, you know, the the, the, the stations, the, the uh, geology experiments, the, you know, picking up rocks and all that. But he couldn't connect what it felt like. Exactly. The emotion. Yeah. And he got so disturbed by this that he went to a therapist who I happen to know separately. And I have this story from the therapist, who I'm not going to name names. Mm. He goes to this therapist to have this person debrief him with a hypnotic, you know, probe to go past whatever blocks so we can get at what he really felt like to walk on the moon. Mm. And the therapist can't get him to go there. He actually demurs, oh, that's not important. And he does everything possible, but he will not, he cannot break through the block. So whatever technology was used, I think is a cut above normal hypnosis. Okay. But given that we're dealing with the military industrial complex, an awful lot of secret nasty experiments, I would imagine that hypnotic with drugs can be pretty damn foolproof. Because I know two astronauts now that show all the evidence of post-hypnotic conditioning where they can't even go next to the idea, what did it feel like? Hmm. But what about these reports that they sourced off on the way to the moon? Um, And this was censored. They did see stuff. They saw the slaw panels. uh, And Aldrin talks about that. Did they actually see 
alien ET spacecraft pacing them? Probably not. I think all that... Even if they did, they, how could they know it was alien uh, spacecraft? Yeah. Or they could know it was something, right? So. Well, they, well, they saw from the command line on Apollo 11, they saw blinking lights following them. Yeah, couldn't that be the secret space program? It could have been. There's a whole other story I would tell if we had time, which we don't know. I can tell the next time. Yep. Um, but, yeah, in other words, why would a so-called secret space program show up to where it would be visible to the visible program if you want to keep your astronauts in the dark? Good point. Good point. That makes no sense. No. Why would aliens or ETs show up when it's so primitive that it's not even worth paying attention to? But it makes great disinformation mm. for that segment of the population that's going to believe the woo-woo and therefore de-legitimize de any really unusual things. Yeah, that's the name of their game. We know you have to go, so let us wind down. Let's end on this high note. And uh, do you have any more time for Enterprise Mission website these days? You're so busy mm -hmm. with your new radio show and everything. Well, but it's being still updated, and you're still putting out papers? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I haven't. I, actually, I was thinking of doing a paper on this moon stuff because the people, the amateurs photographing the lunar cities from the Earth. See, the biggest thing that I've been asked out over the years is, well, if there are all these ancient glass cities on the moon, how come we don't see them? <laughs> and the answer is we have been for centuries. Nobody has known what they look like. Mm. They've been misapprehending the corona for the glass structures hugging the moon's surface. Yeah. It's only now with sophisticated digital technology that an average person with a with a handheld camera can take a picture which when you blow it up in photoshop bingo and i will go through i was going to go through in a paper which i still may do but i figure now since most people are on the web and they're looking at videos i'll i'll do this as a video and that way we can animate it show stuff oh yeah and then i'll do a follow-up paper for enterprise but the real way to put stuff out there now is to put it in video. into video format seeing is believing right so So that's what I'm going to do after I put out the moon one, uh, the moon, the Mars one in the next couple of weeks. Okay. And we've had, uh, you know, we had a big focus today on your NASA book, but you, we should mention the other book too, the first one, Monuments of Mars. Isn't that out in a revised edition too? Oh, yes. It's up in its sixth edition. It's uh, the Monuments of Mars, a city on the edge of forever in either the fifth or sixth edition. Then the next That's where the whole hula hoop began with the face on Mars. That's how most people got to know you. Exactly. The analysis of Sidonia, yep. the structuring of the face. Kinthea's work is reported in that in that volume. And the, the Mark Carlotta's 3D computer stuff, the DNM pyramid, the decoding of the mathematics, the sacred geometry, the the beginnings of the NASA ritual. Because they do all this stuff now by these secret hyperdimensional keys, particularly 19.5, again and again and again. Mm. So finding 19.5 Batabi's star told me that that was how we're connected mm. just uh, just just a preview there right and uh, very important to say people if you don't know it yet richard has finally become a radio host himself now uh, now art bell i can't into doing this by art bell yes no because we you know we all know the story about your vage with george nori but he never let you on as a host nope and now finally you are a host And it took out Bell, actually, because he made his own channel. Uh, what was this channel called again? Um, it, it was actually an internet site called Dark Matter. Right. But 
Then he jumped off the ship pretty early, didn't he? Something very strange happened. Um, I don't know why Art retired suddenly in a very dramatic... For the 10th time. He was claiming that people were shooting at him, you know, 30-30s, rifles through the walls and all that. So basically he left me the only one left on the runway, and then they asked me to kind of leave. I'm not quite sure why. So we are now independent. We're on shortwave. We're on the internet. We're on AM and FM. We're looking now at network coverage on uh, GCN. We're talking with them. And also on the web. So your show is called The Other Side of Midnight. I didn't know you could. You, when you say it's on the web, you mean live. You you can't find. It's live, yeah. No, no, no. It, it's also now being archived. You can find it. It is. Oh, yes. It's now being archived. Tell us. Um, well, if you go to Blog Talk, yeah. uh, you will find access to the archives there. Uh, we just made that deal the other day. And we're on I forget which podcasting iTunes, I think, is now going to take it. And you just search up. Uh, I did a search the other day on on Google on the other side of midnight radio show. Mm-hmm. 18 million searches for my show. <laughs> Eight, and we're number two in talk stream uh, when we're on. Yeah. You know, we would we would actually probably lead Nori, except uh, he had 600 affiliates and we had three. Right. So it all depends on talk stream and how many. Uh, streams are feeding into the internet. So the fact that we're number two when we're on and he's number one and we're basically, you know, uh, giant next David, David and Goliath. Well, you're nibbling at his ass, basically. So, Well, let's not get into personalities, but it's basically <laughs> Premier. It's basically a corporation. Yeah. And, and the good news is that we are winning the uh, people war against the corporation. And all we need is more affiliates and more people to listen. And I hope your show will help. Yep. Me too. Me too. I guess we'll just end it there for now. Okay. Uh, you have uh, uh, here in Norway, I don't know if you know, but an oral contract is as law-abiding as a written one. Uh, so you can take people to court if they promise something. Okay. So you've already said a couple of times you come back. So just remind you of the Norwegian laws. <laughs> <right? So laughs> I, I don't need legal reasons to come back. That's it's great. A very, very enjoyable <laughs> afternoon. And we've only scratched the surface because we have. when you're looking at hidden space programs or hidden history – or hidden who the human race really is. I mean, 2017 is going to be the year. Lots of things that have been hidden. Are, that's what the definition of apocalypse is. It doesn't mean disaster. No, it no. It means lightning. Revelation. Yes. So your book will be out approximately when? Hopefully by Christmas. So, we're, we're working very hard. So I suggest you come back for Christmas then. Okay. I can do that. Mm. Great stuff, Richard. Thanks a lot Thank for, for enlightening us. I've had a great time. Me too. So uh, I guess you you don't have time for any post talk. So no, no, just run. No, I really haven't. I've been spending almost four hours. You got me in almost four hours, my guy. I know. And if it, I wasn't such a decent guy, I would try for five. But you know what? Give my best to Robin. I certainly and enjoy yourself today. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Yeah, we will. Bye bye. Bye bye. And thanks again to Mr. Hoagland for coming on and getting the forum treatment. I'm going to read you some excerpts from Dark Mission, but first a few practical updates. We have lots of subscribers at our main YouTube channel, but only a fraction have discovered our other channel there, called Forum Borealis Shorts. 
Now it's easy to find by going to our main channel's front page and you'll see almost at the top posted all the uploads from that other channel there. We would appreciate if you'd bother to subscribe to that channel also. Don't think it's just stuff you already know from our main channel because even if we indeed do post snips from the full shows there, there's exclusives too, like teaser previews from coming shows that we first put up on our shorts channel. And also we will post bonus stuff from our website there when it's time to dump it to the public. And if you're a patron who signed up at our website, or just a listener who enjoys our shows, but in either case have not subscribed to our YouTube channels, please do so. I won't bore you by listing all the good reasons. Sufficient to say, the larger our channels become, the more YouTube will treat us properly and give us opportunities lacking today. Okay, I'll give you one example. We waste lots and lots of time by having to fight, taking down other channels' re-uploads of our entire show. Sometimes channels pop up that contain all our programs and only our programs, and they even monetize them. Now this detracts views from us, not to mention that it defunds us, so we have to try to get rid of it. The uh, problem is, until we become large enough, we have to file one and one complaint, and the bureaucratic mill is terrible, and there's lots of correspondence involved. And so, if we get more subscribers, we are eligible for automation, where we will be notified of matches and can tick a box for what should happen to it. And this alone will free lots of energy that we can spend on actually creating more content, which means more frequent programs for you to enjoy. So you help us out practically by subscribing and of course the biggest support, apart from donations, is spreading our shows and getting more listeners. If you like a show, just share it on your social media. That's the most effective way for organic growth. Now let's listen to a few quotes from Richard's fascinating book Dark Mission, The Secret History of NASA that he co-authored with a former engineer and NASA contractor Mike Barra. Just who had been involved and how much did they know? What could make them stay silent for so long? How many people at NASA would have been in on it to pull off such an enormous coup? right under the noses of the literally tens of thousands of honest rank-and-file NASA scientists and engineers. And how were they recruited? Aldrin had at the time been a 32nd degree Scottish Rite Freemason. There was now a direct linkage between Aldrin and the ceremonial act he had committed on the moon. It was a direct offering by a Freemason to the ancient Egyptian gods that his craft most revered. The timing of the ceremony, 33 minutes after landing, when Sirius was at 19.5 degree above the landing site, might have something to do with the tradition of the 33 degree in the Scottish Rite. In the ancient and accepted Scottish Rite, the 33 degrees considered the highest level of enlightenment that a Freemason can achieve. Coupled with the tetrahedral 19.5 altitude of Sirius above Tranquility Base, this suggested that there was some significant connections between these quote-unquote holy numbers. 
Yet it was too easy to simply say that these Egyptian rituals were a conspiracy by the Freemasons inside Nasser. Over the century, Freemasonry has been the target of derision, persecution and suspicion that is not generally justified. However, there is a significant difference between the Masonic craft in general and the more specific institution of which Aldrin was a member, the ancient and accepted Scottish Rite. It is not directly connected to the Grand Lodges of the craft. The vast majority of Freemasons throughout the world are member of the Grand Lodges only. If a Mason desires to continue his studies of the spiritual and ethical teachings of Freemasonry, he may elect to pursue degrees in one of several appendant bodies, of which the York Rite and Scottish Rite are the two most prominent. So, when someone talks about a 33-degree Freemason, they are actually talking about a member of the Scottish Rite appendant body. It, like the US Senate, is a very exclusive club. As Aldrin was a member of the Southern Jurisdiction, which controlled all the Scottish Rites lodges in Washington DC, Houston, Florida, Alabama, and every other major city that held a significant NASA manned spaceflight facility, we focused exclusively on this organization. It quickly became obvious that the Scottish Rite could and did have a significant influence on the agency, including many of its contractors and employees. Hoagland discovered that Aldrin had also carried a Masonic apron with him to the moon and a flag from the Supreme Council of the Southern Jurisdiction. Upon returning, he had delivered both personally to the Sovereign Grand Commander Southern Jurisdiction at a temple in Washington, D.C. in a very solemn ceremony. The Grand Lodge of Texas also claimed that Aldrin had staked claim to the moon in the name of Freemasonry by a ritual he performed during one of the Apollo EVAs and subsequently formed Tranquility Lodge 2000, which endeavoured to eventually have its meetings on the moon itself. We quickly discovered that several more astronauts were Scottish Rite Freemasons, including some of the most famous. The obvious question then was just how many in the NASA hierarchy were Scottish Rite Freemason members under the Southern jurisdiction. As it turned out, just about everybody who was anybody at NASA had some ties to the craft. Not only that, but we soon discovered that the Freemasons were not the only quote-unquote secret society operating behind the scenes at NASA, nor were they alone in their dedication to the Egyptian legions of the great gods. The story of Werner von Braun, Kurt Debus and the other German rocket scientists brought to the US after World War II may not be as strange, but it is, if anything, far more disturbing. To most Americans who grew up during the 1960s, Dr. Werner von Braun is a hero of the American space program, largely credited as the single most important figure in the moon rocket programs. Von Braun is rarely mentioned these days, and when he is, he is usually portrayed as either a dedicated empirical scientist or a lovable buffoon. Von Braun was far more than just a German rocket scientist or even a mere member of the Nazi party, as some historians have freely admitted. Von Braun during World War II was nothing less than a major in the SS, the fearsome and fanatically loyal arm of the Nazi war machine, entrusted to carry out the most inhuman acts of the regime. Linda Hunt found survivors of the Nazi missile factories who told her that von Braun not only witnessed executions and abuse of prisoners at those facilities, but ordered executions. 
Recently, new documents also show that von Braun was commissioned to come up with a plan near the end of World War II to use one of his V-2 rockets to bomb New York City with a radioactive device, which would have immediately killed thousands to say nothing of the untold later deaths from cancer. That such a man could spend his later years walking with presidents and giving speeches on the wonders of space explorations rather than rotting in prison for crimes against humanity, is clear testament to the political expediencies of the Cold War. Von Braun, who was still a student, operated at the secret laboratory on the Baltic coast near Panamunda, where his classified research doubled as his doctoral thesis. His design was successful and the German rocket program led the way. When Hitler came to power in '33, von Braun remained in Germany, even though he could have left. Von Braun's team had the eyes of the Führer on them almost from the moment Hitler assumed power. Colonel Walter Dornberger was personally assigned by Hitler to oversee the research for military applications. In 1939, Adolf Hitler himself visited the young scientist's lab, where he was treated to an impressive demonstration of the capabilities of the rockets von Braun's team had been developing. The Führer came away impressed with the demonstration, but pressed von Braun to escalate his timetable for full-scale development. A few weeks after the meeting, von Braun received a letter offering a commission in the SS from Himmler personally. The canonical history is that he was pressured by the Third Reich and that he agonized over the decision. But this actually seems increasingly unlikely. Von Braun's aristocratic parents had many high-level connections even in Hitler's government, and many European aristocrats were members of secret societies, like the Masons joining the Nazi party. Even the SS might not only have seemed like a good career move, but may have come naturally to a man who was taught his higher place in society was a birthright. In fact, it is now clear that von Braun was a close personal friend of German Reichsführer Heinrich Himmler, who offered him the SS degree and rank of major. It was also a secret society, designed specifically by Himmler to be a German counterpart to the Freemason influence in Europe, influenced by various Aryan cults of the early 1900s, like the Thule Society. The SS created its own set of rituals and degrees modeled on the Masonic rites. The von Braun, along with other Nazi rocketry experts, was a voluntary member of this Quartzi occult military organization. It is not at all far-fetched for a man of von Braun's clear ambition. He might have seen his membership as not only desirable, but perhaps even a requirement, considering the secrecy involved in German rocket projects. If he could show Hitler and Himmler he could keep a secret, they would trust him that much more with money and resources, like the slave labor needed in the secret factories. Von Braun was certainly considered a key member of the Reich's upper echelon. A testament to this is the fact that at his induction into the SS, Himmler himself was in attendance and it was most certainly a rare occasion when the Reichsführer attended an SS induction ceremony. Von Braun perfected the world's first true ballistic missile in the early 1940s. Shortly thereafter, the weapon was being mass-produced at the Mittelwerk concentration camp. In compliance with Hitler's orders, the A-4 flying bomb was deployed against Britain in 1944. The London town Chiswick was devastated by the bomb and Joseph Goebbels renamed the A-4 the Vengeance Weapon 2 or V-2. Von Braun knew well before the end 
that the war was lost. As the Allies neared the capture of the V-2 rocket complex, von Braun engineered the surrender of 500 of his top rocket scientists, along with plans and test vehicles to the Americans. Von Braun and his compatriots were brought to America under Project Paperclip, despite some objections by investigators in the Joya. The simple fact that von Braun, Arthur Rudolf, Kurt Debus, Humbertus Strugholt and many other German scientists with elaborate Nazi pasts were brought to the US at all is a testament to Cold War convenience. President Truman's executive order authorizing the program was very specific. No ardent Nazis or war criminals would be allowed into the US under paperclip. Clearly, as a major in the SS, von Braun met the minimum criteria of ardent Nazi. Fortunately for von Braun, he had friends in high places, not just in Germany, but in the US, in the personages of Drs. Vannevar Bush and von Karman. Their influence was so powerful that doubts expressed by the field investigators were ultimately conveniently overlooked. In its evaluation of von Braun, written on June 25, 1947, Quincy the same date as the founding of modern Freemasonry in 1717, and one possible date given for the infamous UFO crash at Roswell, New Mexico, the Joya basically punts in its evaluation of him, clearing the way for him to emigrate to America. Von Braun immediately showed his expertise and abilities as an organizer and was eventually rewarded by being appointed technical director of the U.S. Army Ballistic Weapons Program. Von Braun and his cohorts were so certain of their value that they made no attempt to conceal either the Nazi past or apparently the love for the Third Reich. Having beaten the system through paperclip, they evidently didn't care who knew of their ardent Nazi histories. Most, if not all, had elaborate Nazi records and were still heavily committed to the party's ideologies and apparently even openly practiced its sacraments. The group freely displayed swastikas and other Nazi symbols on the clothes and on signs in the camps where they were kept after their immigration to the US. During this same period, von Braun used various avenues to sell Americans on the idea of space travel. He wrote several articles in the popular quarterly magazines, and the success of these articles attracted the notice of 33-degree Scottish Rite Freemason Walt Disney. Disney hired von Braun to produce and star in three popular television films about space travel in the future. These programs helped establish von Braun as America's most notable space experts. These programs also had their curious share of thinly veiled occult and Masonic symbolism. In Mars and Beyond, for instance, the traveling astronauts discover evidence of an ancient abandoned civilization on Mars. But that pales in comparison to the first program, Man in Space. In this seminal space propaganda film, von Braun discusses how a manned reconnaissance of the moon might be handled in the near future. In the dramatization, von Braun's rocket takes five days to get to the moon, with a chance for one pass around the quote-unquote dark side. The film does a remarkable job of accurately depicting the moon's surface until a dramatic event takes place, as the ship is flying along in its single orbit, a crewman suddenly announces that he has a high radiation reading at 33 degrees. A radar operator then announces that he has an unusual formation coming up in front of them, 
and a flare is launched immediately. When it detonates, the blast of light reveals the unmistakably geometric outline of an installation on the cratered surface far beneath them on the far side of the moon. There is no question that this formation is completely different than anything we have seen in any of the other recreated views of the moon in the film, and no question that the formation is also definitely artificial. So what is the reaction to this sight by the astronauts on board? Absolutely nothing. Not a word is spoken about it in the dramatization, nor at any point later in the film. Von Braun simply inserted it without comment. One possible implication of this is that the astronauts were required to keep quiet about what they saw. Von Braun and Disney obviously intended to portray the moon as previously inhabited and simultaneously pay homage to the Masonic 33 degree. In 1955, Von Braun became a US citizen. When Vanguard ignominiously blew up on the launch pad with the whole world watching, Von Braun's team was then suddenly frantically recruited to save the day and get the US some kind of win in their own rushing space race. Shortly after the mission's historic success, NASA was formally established. And Von Braun had finally stamped the ticket he'd been looking to cash in on for decades. Von Braun was appointed director of the new Marshall Space Flight Center in July 1960 and given the task of developing the rockets for the new agency. Glennon moved quickly to establish the agency's monopoly over space exploration. One of NASA's first acts was to commission the Brookings Report, which makes crystal clear the discovery of extraterrestrial artifacts fall under the dark blanket of national security. When John F. Kennedy took office in 1961, he moved swiftly to replace Glennon and restructure NASA to accomplish one of the major goals of his presidency, placing a man on the moon by 1970. To this end, Kennedy, on the specific recommendation of Vice President Johnson, appointed James E. Webb as the new administrator. It is on the web, another 33-degree Scottish Rite Freemason, that the true influence of the various secret societies within the new agency came into its own. Within a few months, Webb had appointed Kenneth Kleinknecht as director of Project Mercury. Kenny had already been selected in 1959 as one of the two single points of contact between NASA and the DoD. In this dual role, he was able to monitor information that traveled back and forth between Project Mercury and the Pentagon. With a lengthy history as an engineer in a variety of black military programs in 1950, he was ideally suited for this job. If there was a plan for the Masons to place their men at the highest levels of the space program, it could not have been more successful. Von Braun and the German rocket team also made their moves. Von Braun placed many of his old Nazi cohorts into key positions in the new space agency. At Von Braun's behest, Kurt Diebus was made the first director of the Kennedy Space Center. Diebus was also a Nazi party member and he organized the space center at Cape Canaveral along the lines of the German rocket programs of Mittelwerk and Penemunde, minus the slave labor, of course. Once these organizations were in place, the task of selecting the astronauts for the manned program began.
Here again, a clear preference for Freemasons was expressed. There could, of course, be perfectly mundane reasons why so many of the astronauts were Masons. Many aspects of the lunar programs were secret, and the potential candidates may have seen membership in the order as a means of demonstrating their ability to keep a secret. They may also have simply noticed that with Webb in charge of the agency, they might have a better chance of being selected if they joined his order. Becoming a member of a civic or fraternal organization, certainly in the US, has long been a well-trod path to connections for enterprising individuals and thus greater business or career success. Once they had established themselves in all the key positions throughout the new space agency, von Braun, Webb, von Karman, Elbaz and all the rest of them were able to proceed with plans they had been incubating quietly for many years pre-NASA with Brookings as a specifically designed political excuse for keeping key future NASA discovery secrets, the elite leadership of this clandestine occult hierarchy were able to set in motion an inner program, carefully hidden from the general public and the honest side of NASA, which appears to have been no less than a massive technological effort to confirm their shared religious visions of a literal duat on the surface of the moon and beyond, to which they and they alone deserved sole access. In other words, if we are right, these elitists literally stole the entire space program for themselves from the rest of all mankind. While on the surface the Freemasons and the Nazis would appear to have little in common in pursuit of such an astonishing arrogant elitist vision, in fact the exact opposite is true. As we have established, Freemasons holds the most ancient gods of Egypt and their complicated incestuous relationships as being the cornerstone of a cosmology older than civilization itself, of which they see themselves as now playing out major crucial roles. The same is true for the SS. The early Aryan cult from which Hitler's Nazi party sprang traced their lineage back to the Teutonic Knights, a Germanic offshoot of the Knights Templar. Their ascendancy merges with the Templars and traces back again to ancient Egypt. Hitler and Himmler believed that these Egyptian gods themselves came from Atlantis, which they believed was a high civilization established on Earth by extraterrestrials. In this view, the ancient and uninterrupted bloodline from Horus to the present was the ultimate source of the natural supremacy of the Aryan race itself. It was this divine right of descent which gave the modern Nazis, in their view, their prerogative to rule all other men on planet Earth. So if all of these secret societies had at their core a deep obsession with the gods of ancient Egypt, it was entirely plausible that all of them might have had the motivation to manipulate Apollo 11 landing in the ways we have described. Given the documented deployment of key members of each of these groups in strategic position throughout the agency, they certainly had the means. Another ritual coincidence, a second NASA mission deliberately landed on the day of Hitler's birth. While commemorating the infamous leader of the Third Reich, the key players were now overwhelmingly identified as none other than the NASA members of the former Reich. NASA at the highest levels had effectively been taken over from the Masons. Further, it was now clear that the Nazis had carefully set up the precedent in 61, the real objectives of Apollo, including a return to Earth of artifacts 
from the ancient ruins that the Nazis knew about and clearly viewed as being left by their own ancestors. No wonder Kennedy was murdered. Immediately after his repeated offer to share this priceless quote-unquote Nazi heritage with their worst enemies, the Russians, was finally accepted. This is just uh, a fraction of what you can read about in his book. This is from the part that concerns the power battle behind the scenes. Thus far today, but we've already got other shows stacked up for this series, so stay tuned. Your host has been your pal Al, signing off with sincere regards. Be seeing you. number one.